Hi, everyone. It's me, James. Before I start today's episode, I wanted to uh, put out a few quick disclaimers. Firstly, this episode was a nightmare to record due to some very bad internet problems. It was recorded over several different uh, sessions over several days. And I do eventually mention this in the episode, but we had some issues recording even before the disclaimer I put in during the recording. So if we seem a bit scattershot or repeat ourselves a few times, that's why. Secondly, this episode's going up on June 29th, I believe. And usually I do bi-weekly, but I think I'm going to have to take a couple weeks off due to some uh, health concerns and just life so this episode's going up on the 29th, but might not be another episode until the 20th or possibly the 27th of July. I apologize. I do have some stuff lined up, some good guests, and some fun movies, so I think you'll enjoy it when I come back. And I think that's it for now, so on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Cinema Oblivio, your podcast for discussions on weird old movies and such. As usual, I am your host, James Eldred, and we're going, I guess not really across the pond because I'm in Japan, but <laughs> coming in from the UK, who's back for another episode? It's Rob Hill. Rob Hill. Yes. Hey, Rob. How you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How's it going, James? I'm pretty good. Rob Hill from the Bad Movie, Bad Movie, bad movie Bible YouTube channel. That's right. That's right. You know, properly plug yourself. No, put that sounds gross. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I, um, <laughs> it started already. I can't help it. Um, I have been noticing from your letterbox. I can, I can guess. You, I think I know your next video, but f- judging from your letterbox activity alone, <laughs> I'm going to say your next video is about aliens. Uh, alien. Yeah, you, you could be onto something there, actually. Yeah. In fact, it's it's looking like being three videos because it's just such a ridiculously enormous franchise or rather subgenre, the alien ripoff world so yeah that's it is that's the mission i'm in the middle of at the moment and it's a big one is it gonna be bigger than a diehard video yeah yeah so i'm doing it i'm doing alien in two parts um oh, so okay. alien knockoffs from the 80s and then alien knockoffs from the 90s and beyond and then aliens knockoffs as a third video so i'm just trying to work out which ripoff belongs to which movie has been a mission in itself but it's it's starting to come together now i'm a long way through it i just watched an aliens ripoff last week um coincidentally right before he passed away i watched deep rising with treat williams yeah me uh, too funnily enough how strange yeah, yeah strange which is definitely an aliens ripoff well i don't I, I i'm calling it a crossover i mention it but i'm calling it a crossover movie because it's just not it, it's it's as much diehard as it is aliens in a funny kind of way when you think about it. Yeah, it's a it, you know it, it, it's a robber it's a, a a huge robbery. The hero isn't meant to be there. He's not really a professional. It's mm-hmm. it, you know it works a lot like diehard. And I, I don't know. I'm I'm not. I don't see it as too aliensy because it's not got the um 
it's not got that aspect of um, a team of people being sent to investigate a thing. It's something they've kind of come across. I will but, say it's a little it's a little aliensy because it has a Hudson. Yeah, and it has a it has a Burke. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. It's also a pretty good movie. I was surprised. Um, the oh, CG is terrible. Yes, uh, it's because it's absolutely CG, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's it's worse than average. I think because I watched a while ago. I watched the Relic, which is mm. an alien ripoff. Yeah, and. That Peter, Hy- I think that's Peter Hyman's or Hyams, whatever is like. Hyams, I think he's so. A, yeah, I mean, I've watched that. He's a better director before. than Steven Singers, <laughs> and <laughs> he knows how to use limitations of CG a bit more. I think, and uh, the relic also has Linda Hunt. I love Linda Hunt. Um, yeah, yeah, she is good. Oh. In that. No, and the effects in general, but it's just it's shot a lot more like Alien in that the monster is sort of little seen. It's there's lots of close ups mm-hmm. of it, and it's it's lit properly, which CG of that era never is. Deep Rising is a good example of that. The the monsters are just so unnaturally overlit that well, it, yeah, it, it, it looks much worse. Yeah, and you know Peter Hyams, he directed classics like Sudden Death. So he's a good director. Uh, Stephen Summers went on to do The Mummy, though, and, uh, and that's yeah. a hell of a movie. I have still never seen those movies. Oh, um, no, man. You're I the have first not seen... one's great fun. Well, you're the first person to say that. <laughs> <laughs> the have... that you know aren't exactly run-of-the-mill, though. No, they are not. I, I, I discovered today's film through, through, through some of one of your um, letterboxings. We'll get there in a minute. But... Uh, do you want to shout out any alien ripoff or alien ripoff in particular that you think people should see, either because it's very, very good or very, very bad? Um, there's well, there's always a couple. So, uh, there's one which um, I didn't know of, which has been a nice surprise, was um, uh, a, a zombie. I can't, I've now forgotten who it was. It's either Lu- uh, Lucio. No, it's not. It's, um, it's uh, Bruno, Bruno Mattei. Oh, good, good old uh, Bruno Mattei. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very Italian. But it's it's kind of, it's like from the 2000s. And it's a zombie movie. It's one of his zombie series. The, the, the poster artwork even uses the same artwork as the early 80s zombie movies do. But okay. it's a, a complete Aliens ripoff, like shot for shot. It's quite, it's extraordinary how similar it is. And it's funny. It's really, really inadvertently funny. Is but, it yeah, Zombies I, the Beginning? Zombies the Beginning, that's it. Yes, Okay. Yes, I, I, I found your, your review on Letterboxd that says, I wish that I had been there and Buddha Mate realized that what was missing from his zombie movie was a stolen footage from a Denzel Washington driving a submarine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's literally got, I forgot, I forgot, what is it, Red, not Red October, the, the Crimson Tide. Crim- Crimson Tide, Crimson yeah. Tide. This, for no reason whatsoever, there's a bunch of footage from on board the submarine just thrown into the movie. But... Bruno Mate <laughs> is a terrible director. <laughs> He's not one of the best, is he? Uh, I've only seen. Um, I think I've seen Women's Prison Massacre. But I don't remember. Um, and I've seen Cruel Jaws or Jaws Five, as it's known in yeah. some areas. That's a great uh, movie. I love that film. Oh, I mean, it's a gr- it's it's a great movie. I don't know if it's a great movie. It's uh, <laughs> it's great. It's great in quotes for sure. Yes, it's great. Bad. Um, it's it's some it is a whew, that fucking movie. Uh, I've been watching better films. <laughs> that wouldn't be difficult. I well, I did watch well. I mean, well, let's see. I did watch um, 
Double Trouble, the the Barbarian Brothers movie. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, <laughs> which is terrible, and that has uh, that's for somehow has Ronnie McDowell as the bad guy and Bill Mummy as an assassin, and that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and Troy Donahue is in that, and James Duhon, uh, Louis Arquette. That's a that's one of those movies that it has it has legitimately funny scenes in it, but it's just terrible. <laughs> And um, but in in good movie territory, I watched. I finished the In the Line of Duty box set. Um, oh, okay. Which, and um, as I said in the last episode, I I thought yes, Madam's overrated. I did not like that movie. But In the Line of Duty four is one of the best martial arts films I've ever seen in my entire life. I can't and, place the In the Line of Duty movies. I can't remember. I've never it, seen it yes, before. Them before. What was that? I'm sorry. Is, is, yes, Madam is one of them. Is it? Yes, Madam's one of them, and and Michelle Yeoh is only in the first two. Cynthia Rothrock's only in the first one. Yeah, and from there, uh, they get Cynthia. They somebody they named Cynthia Khan, which is hilarious. Um, and Donnie Yen is in is in them, yeah. and um, four is just nonstop action. It's directed by Wu Ping, um, Young Wu Ping, who yeah. did Iron Monkey, of course, and all the you know Matrix and stuff, biography. That movie was incredible, and then I followed that up by watching uh, Over the Top, <laughs> um, properly drunk, which I, which is as you said, watch Over the Top, and then the next, and then I watched Last Starfighter, and that made me cry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I saw your tweet about that. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's quite. It's, I mean, that's a hell of a movie. I I, I did this, this Star Wars video a few months ago, and revisited all those films, and. Flash Gordon and the Last Starfighter are the two that they're they're just marvelous. The pair of them. I've never seen Flash Gordon. Um, oh, you, you'd like Flash Gordon, actually. I think I, it's. I've it's heard kitsch, that from many people. In a, not in a, it, you know, it's not. It's not too. It's kitsch, but it takes itself seriously as well. Yeah, that's what I. That's what, that's what I like. But um, the and spoilers for the Last Starfighter, which is almost forty years old, and I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna just turn to dust as, as I say that sentence, but. That last scene in that movie where he lands his the face it back on Earth, and everyone's just so happy to see him go to space and fight aliens, and then his little brother grabs a stool to play the video game that so he can go fight aliens too. There's something about it. It's just it's so innocent. It, it's the most Steven Spielberg moment that isn't Steven Spielberg. And it's so optimistic. And watching it now in a world that's on fire makes me sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that happens a lot with '80s movies. Sometimes, yeah. '80s, you know, '80s stuff is just so just cheer, cheerful. Sometimes, um, when I it's not death wish. Problems, but yeah, yeah, we thought, yeah, exactly. So that was just a, that's just the more I think about it, the more I liked it, and I love the bad CG. Just love it. I just <laughs> absolutely love it. And that was then, incredible. That was a favorite of mine when I was a kid. It tells you how old I am. I I loved that film as a child, and the CG was. Mind altering. I, I, I remember being almost stressed out trying to figure out how they did this because I didn't, you know, you didn't know anything about CGI at the time, and it, everything was impossible. All these impossible things kept happening. I know I saw that in the theater when I was five. Oh wow! And uh, I remember hiding in my mom, like cowering my head when they killed that one guy, like over the hologram. And they torture that one guy. Yeah, that's that's uh, horrible, isn't it? 
And um, but that's all I remembered from watching it as a kid. And then I wa- I probably saw it on cable a few times. And I watched it again in college, and I forgot about it until I watched it this this past week. And I was just like, God damn, this is a this is a great fucking movie. So, <laughs> yo, Last Starfighter, great fucking movie. <laughs> damn straight. Um, then last night I watched The Substitute, not a great fucking movie. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed The Substitute, but that might be the most racist movie I like. <laughs> I've is not a, seen it for years. I don't remember at all. Oh, I mean, have you ever seen The Principal? I don't think I have. With Belushi, that's a great movie. And The Principal is also a white savior film, you know. But The Principal, uh, if someone's not going to like that because it has issues, I, I completely understand that viewpoint. But The Principal, for me, the characters, all the characters, both the white characters and the people of color, they're allowed to be humans. And they have good points. Even a lot of the bad kids have good points and bad points. It's realistic. Not all the kids are pieces of shit. Um, also, the school is mixed race, so they're all white shitheads too, which is nice. Um, kind of like my school. Uh, my school, everybody sucked. Didn't <laughs> was not <laughs> issue minorities. Uh, the substitute. Every kid in that school is a person of color, and every kid in that school would rather have sex or dance than te- or kill people than learn. And the only way that Tom Berenger can get through to them is by comparing Vietnam to a turf war. <laughs> now, that being said, the movie is hilarious. Ernie Hudson owns it as the bad guy. Like, he's great. And um, Tom Berenger's terrible. But I wanted to watch... People recommended me the sequels that have Treat Williams in them. So I wanted yeah. to watch those, even though they're completely unrelated. I was like, well, I said watch part one. And it's it's not like... It's it's bad. It's hilarious. Mark Anthony's the bad guy, and he looks like fucking Steve Buscemi. <laughs> like Louise Guzman's in that as a mercenary, which is hilarious. Um, and it has the wife from Heat, uh, Diane Verona. Oh yeah, yeah. And I I don't see her in a lot of stuff anymore, and I like her. Um, she's completely useless, wasted here, like most women in Hollywood. Um. But, you know, it's a bad movie, but I recommend it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that. But uh, today we're talking about a good movie. <laughs> oh, just a bit. Just a bit. Today we're talking about What a Carve Up, also known as, I think, Home Sweet Homicide. Oh, no, no, No Place Like Homicide. No Place Like Homicide. That's, that's, yeah, I have to say, hearing your accent pronounce those two names, it, it, you suit the second one a lot more somehow. Really? It, it well, was you, the American okay, title, wasn't it? Yeah, well, well, well the, okay, you say both now. <laughs> what a carve-up. And uh, what was the, what's the other one? I can't remember. The no US Place title. Like Homicide. No Place Like Homicide. You see, yeah, English people right. shouldn't say homicide. It's not, it's not right. No, you're right. You're right. Because what a carve-up sounds like, like, is that slang for something else? Is that cockney think, slang? Am I saying a bad I, word? No, not that I know of. <laughs> I, think, I think the idea is it's just kind of like a vague allusion to... Um, you, you know, car, car, as in carving up a body, but also I think there was a popular comedy a couple of years earlier called What a Something or Other, okay. and I think in, maybe in the vein of Carry On, they were they were sort of trying to allude to the success of that, and you know, I, I, I don't think it's slang for anything. Okay, well, before we get too into into anything about this, this is probably. Maybe next to too much, the most obscure film I've covered on this podcast. I think too much wins the Canon Family Robot movie. But oh god, yeah, I know that. Yeah, 
yeah, nobody else does. Um, yeah, so, but, yeah, it's not even not available on DVD, so VHS only. But this one's available on Amazon Prime. You get to pay pay to rent it in America, um, and I don't know about it's on it's on discs and stuff too. But yeah. Rob, since this is like one of your favorite movies, I guess could you it is, it, before we get into that why uh, briefly tell people what it's about. It's well on paper. It's a pretty standard old dark house movie, as they as as I know them in this country, and it starts with a couple of lower class layabouts. As as it's British, the class system obviously plays a significant role. It starts White. with a couple of lower class layabouts, uh, one of whom finds out his rich uncle has died, and he's been invited to his mansion for the reading of the will. So he goes with his friend, who's a bit of a chancer. And there they meet this extended family who are all, I think, every one of them um, insane, completely mad. And they start getting bumped off one by one. And there's much running about from room to room. There's much disappearing of bodies. There's much finding of secret passages and all that kind of stuff. Uh, There's all kinds of blimey. Yeah. Lots of blimey. Uh, Yeah. Some core blimey. I'm sorry. Uh, but it, it, it's it? just done. It's done with humor. That's the only difference, really, to to you know the, the stereotypical example of this kind of movie. Well, a lot, from my experience, a lot of these movies are done with humor. So, like, this isn't like with an, an old dark house movie. Like, and those are old. Those are yeah. those are they're a silent ones because so, like there's one, the Seven Keys to Bald Bald Pate. Yeah, I think yeah, might be the first one. Yeah, and, and there's, and I think there are actually about three versions of that made before there are, i counted one it. two three four five six seven versions of that yeah and one of them is the house of long shadows yeah with um peter cushing uh carradine, john carradine and christopher lee and for some reason desi Arnaz jr and um that's not a good movie but also cat in the canary um the 1941 movie, The Black Cat, which is a great movie with, with uh, Basil Rathbone. Yeah. Um, and, of course, The Old Dark House from 1932, remade in 63 yeah. by William Castle and Hammer, which is a strange movie. Uh, the original one, I believe, is the director of Frankenstein. Uh, uh, yeah. What's his name? Yeah. Yeah. And, James Whale. And, yeah, and, and, and a lot, of the, a lot of the cast from Frankenstein as well. Well, it's a pre-code movie, so it's kind of fucked up. And like you said, it has a it has a Boris Karloff and who who else from Frankenstein's in that? Um, oh god, the the woman in it it has a smaller role and oh god, I can't remember now. But it's also got Charles Lawton in it, who is yes. one of my favorite actors. As as a as a again, it's 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 an old British comedy, so there has to be lots of class system stuff in it. And he's mm-hmm. he's kind of like a, a a rich, successful merchant, which is very down market to the old aristocratic family and it's it, that's actually also one of my you you've really listed a bunch of my very favorite films there because i just love the old dark house um aesthetic in general and as you say yeah there, there is a lot of comedy in in them the old dark mm-hmm. house is a is not a comedy but it has humor in it and then of course the cat and the canary which is another one of my absolute favorites but one you've missed is um and then there were none which is oh yeah, I yeah. the best, the single best old dark house movie ever made, so, which is uh, adapted from an Agatha Christie. Which novel. version of that do you recommend? 
the uh, 19, what is it, 42-ish? I can't remember what year it is now, but it's definitely 40s. And it's uh, full of full of great character actors. And it's 1945? Ju- that sounds right, yeah. Okay, I'll add that to my watch list now. Because I've, I've been wanting to watch that because my boyfriend loves Agatha Christie. And there were so many versions of that. Yeah, this is definitely the best one. And in fact, there's a there's a version made a few years after What a Carve Up, starring a couple of people from What a Carve Up. I mean, Shirley Eaton's oh. in it. I think Dennis Price is in in one version as well. Who's also in What a Carve Up. Yeah, and, and also, and then there were none as the least least offensive title for that. Yes, exactly. So good, good, good on them. Good on them. Oh yeah. boy. Uh, but I discovered this movie only because I was looking on Letterboxd for Donald Pleasant's films I hadn't seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this one came up and I saw you and I saw that you give it five stars. Yeah. So I was like, well, I, I thought we watch this. So that's my story with this. Um, <laughs> Rob, this sounds like a big movie for you. Like, how did you discover this movie and why is it so important for you? Well, it's one of those situations. I think if you're. If you're our sort of age, or I say my sort of age, um, and we're in our forties, we're both in our forties. Yeah, well, let, yeah, let, let's, yeah. Do me a favor, thank you. And uh, it, it's it, when you're a kid, certainly in the UK anyway. People didn't have video recorders. We had three television channels, then four ch- television channels. So you you went, you, you didn't see an awful lot of media at the end of the day. And my um, extended family, I used to go to stay with uh, regularly in summer and Christmas holidays. And my cousin, who I'd sort of follow around, who was eight or nine years older than me, had a video recorder. And he only had sort of three or four movies that I remember. But <laughs> okay. One of them was What a Carve Up. One of them was Trading Places. And <laughs> one of them was An American Werewolf in London. So from the age of, I think, about eight... I watched those three movies on a loop, when it, just all day long, sometimes over and over. And to this day, I can I can quote you know most of them most of the way through. So that was my relationship with it at a very young age. But then you grow up, you you everyone sort of moves on a bit, and I completely forgot about this movie until I stumbled across it on VHS tape in my twenties. Hmm. and stuck it in and it was just immediately the most nostalgic hit you could ever imagine because you carry on watching or i carried on watching uh, american wealth in london and trading places and things like that so they you know that they go back a long way but that because they've always been with me they've sort of grow you know you grow up with them whereas what a carve up there was this big gap and i completely forgot that it even existed and then like i say probably the biggest nostalgia hit i've ever experienced was re-watching that for the first time and I still sounds, watch it probably once a year now. Sounds like me with with uh, Last Starfighter recently. Yeah, kind of same yeah, thing. Pro- yeah, probably is. Yeah, yeah, it's something I, I kind of forgot about and came back to, and I was like, "This is really goddamn good." Uh, that that's funny. It's, that, that, those are three good movies to have if you're going to have three movies over and over and over again. I think uh, Trading Places, What a Carve Up, and uh, American Werewolf, while not age appropriate. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, one of my one of my go to let's watch this movie every weekend movies when I was five was The Warriors. So, <laughs> you know, but that's that's going again back to my dad being the wonderful nonsensor that he was. Thank you, Dad. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this movie is British, and then some, and <laughs> it is related tangentially, I guess, to the Carry On films. Yeah. C- 
Now, um, not not the same production team, I think, just just the cast and just the main two guys. And yeah. so Carry On, I think we talked about Carry On very briefly when you were on once before. Because yeah. I discovered Carry On through you because you met you showed a clip of the spy movie and it had those two flaming just <laughs> on fire. I'm gay, I can say this. Um uh, the, the gayest men I've ever seen in a movie. Um yeah. and what are their names again? Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey. Unfortunately, not in this movie. Um, and but from that, I watched a few Carry On films. I have seen Carry On Screaming because it's a Hammer spoof, and that's that's okay. Um, but Carry On, I saw Carry On Teacher, and that's great. Mm. And Carry On Cleo is amazing. That's mm. how, and I, if there's anybody like if you're gonna watch one of those movies and you're not, you're not familiar with them, I would recommend Carry On Cleo because I think that that holds up pretty good and it's it's offensive but in a fun way <laughs> yeah yeah and it, it just has that one guy um no we're not not who, who's who's the who's the less campy one what's his name uh <laughs> okay who's 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 not the little guy the big the like the 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 the, the taller guy Charles Waltry is the one with glasses yeah so who, the other one the other one so Kenneth Williams is the is, is, is was the bigger star he he was yeah, kind Kenneth, of the Kind of the big Kenneth name. Williams starting that movie by saying, "Oh, I feel so queer." <laughs> Just killed my boyfriend, and then in Carry On Screaming, when he's in a he's a scient a mad scientist who needs electricity, and he he hooks himself up to some electric electric pads to electrocute and says, "Oh, luxury!" Just <laughs> it's 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 so good. But to to people who aren't us, like. What a what a what a carry on films. <laughs> Can you? Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. That it, it's that I think I think they kind of stem out of two British traditions. Uh, one is being uh, like bawdy postcards, which I don't even know if any if this is a tradition anywhere else in the world, or if anyone is aware that it's a tradition in the UK. But there is a a, a long history of uh, tourist towns, coastal tourist towns in the UK. Uh, selling uh, postcards featuring sort of um, grotesque cartoons or, uh, uh, with a sexual theme, middle-class, <laughs> overweight couples making bawdy jokes to each other. That kind of, so, so there's that and the music hall scene of uh, that sort of died out uh, uh, soon after the turn of the century, I think, in in the UK, which was like the bawdy postcards aimed at. Um, the working classes aimed at um, unsophisticated people, as it were, and they kind of came together. And of course, the, their themes are basically sex and sex, I suppose, and it, <laughs> that creates a great environment for for actors like Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey, who were, as you say, just camp as Christmas and beyond, you know, what you would have thought would be I'm socially acceptable back then. I, I would um, say, yeah, in America, you would not see that. It's 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 a strange thing, isn't it? It's, it's it, and I think we had a similar phenomenon in this country that I think maybe was a thing in America a bit, which is that you could be camp if you were like a game show host or something like that. You, <laughs> like for some reason, or or a comedian, maybe for some reason, there were certain corners of society where you were allowed to be completely, completely camp as long as there was no 
suggest no direct suggestion that would make people feel uncomfortable of you know of, of what they might get up to behind closed doors it's, feel- it's almost like it's that thing it's like it, it's like they have to pretend to be innocent almost whilst making jokes about being anything but well they they could be they could be camp and they could be almost like flaming but they couldn't be sexual exactly and so like exactly. my my go-to example for that in america is paul lind uh, if you're familiar with Paul Lind, I don't know um, him. Paul Lind is the dad in um, uh, Bye Bye Birdie, right. and he sings Kids. And he was in Bewitched, and he was on Hollywood Squares a lot at the Center Square. And yes. um, yeah, that kind of, that's where pe- that's where these people were allowed, basically, wasn't it my, back then? Right? Things like, like celebrity squares. And the most the, the the gayest you could get on TV would be like some like you know Hollywood you know Hollywood Squares. Yeah, and then so like. There's like the question was how many men are on a hockey team and he said yes, <laughs> like that's <laughs> like that's the kind of joke he would make, you know. Charles Nelson Riley, those kind of gays, um, big, you know. Looking back as as a Gen X as a as a, as a Gen X uh, homosexual, um, they are a big influence, yeah, on like my style of humor and stuff like that, which is probably why I like Carry On, and like so the Carry On films those started in the fifties. Yeah, late, late, uh, yeah, mid, mid, mid to late fifties. Yeah, and they and the, started. Uh, I mean, you, you've, as you, you just mentioned, Carry On Teacher. That was one of the first. They started fairly straightforward. There wasn't mm-hmm. so much bawdiness and sex and or, or campery even in the early black and white ones. They were, uh, the, which, t- which actually looking back, tend to be my favourites. As a kid, I couldn't stand mm-hmm. the early ones because they weren't silly enough. It was. Ones like Carry On at Your Convenience were my favorite, which takes place in a toilet factory, hence Carry On at Your Convenience. <laughs> only, the, only the British could make a, I mean, a, a socially think... militant movie, comedy movie based in a toilet factory. The Carry On t-shirt does have some like boob jokes and yeah. there's a character yeah. named there's a character named Miss Alcock. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, it is um, a little bit more compared to where it went. They're not very gay. Like they're not no. they they don't have the gay humor that like uh, Carry On Cleo just goes overboard and eventually they had a film called Carry On Dick, yes, <laughs> yeah, which I have not seen, uh, and I, that, I think, that was one of my favorites actually. I, hey, I like I like to Carry On Dick. Um, anyway, um, but we're mentioning these movies because two people in those movies are in this movie. Mm. And that would be uh, Sidney James as Sid. <laughs> yep. Creative. And he always Ken- someone called Sid. And Kenneth Connor as Ernie. And so these people were pretty famous in England at the time. Then I, I mostly from these movies, mostly from Carry On, I imagine. Yeah, I it's hard to hard to know exactly how big Carry On was at the time, but I, I think it would have been in full swing. Yeah. So Sid mm. James would have been one of the most recognizable and popular, probably people in the country at the time people loved sid james because mm-hmm. he was the bo- he was the bawdy one basically he was he's the one who's always going to make that he's always going to be sneaking out of his tent to catch a catch a look at someone getting changed or wh- whatever it is and, and is, he was the, what he is was his accent the, he's it was london he was a, he okay. was an east end boy i think he was okay. he was actually vaguely associated with the with the Cray brothers, uh, the oh, two most fuck. infamous British gangsters, somehow or other, I forget how. Okay, they, they certainly had a common girlfriend or two, apparently. But he, he, even now, <clears throat> he's, he's a big icon in this country. You know, you get 
you, you go in a, a trendy shop, you'll find T-shirts uh, with pictures of his face on, stuff like that. He's a okay. big, big star. Kenneth Connor, I suppose technically the lead here, yeah. was um, had, had a, had a slightly, slightly different background. He was much more a legitimate performer and entertainer and sort of his screen persona lent itself to carry on because he was very nervous and yeah oh god yeah he's kind of like 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 bob newhart yes exactly or um or 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 a slightly less annoying don knotts as well there's a lot of early don knotts movies where he's scared of everything i I Woody Allen a little bit too like that kind of nebbish nebbish easily startled kind of like dudley moore (laughs) Yeah, but, but but in no way intellectual. No, not, no, not, like, no, a, a, no. A, a low brow Woody Allen. <laughs> yes, we are not. The word intellectual does not apply to any Carry On film or this film. No, it doesn't. No, no. Uh, but yeah, Kenneth Connor. Like I was reading about him, he started working when he was two. Crikey! Yeah, fair and, enough. And be- had his own stage show when he was eleven, and worked until he died, which means he worked for seventy-three years. Yeah, yeah, and and he uh, was he, on stuff. You know, it, it, he was in sitcoms that I grew up watching as well. He, he's yeah, like you say, he's just been around forever. He was around forever. Yeah, yeah, he was a lot, lot, lot. A lot of these people did a lot of TV. Most people in this movie did TV and 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 films. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah, the thing. He, I think in this country, if you you know if you, if you were a star of the British cinema, you you also did a lot of television. Like uh, Kenneth Williams, I've I've read his autobiography, and. He was doing, you know, he, he was one of the most recognizable stars in this country, but still had to do endless demeaning, low-paid television work just to pay the rent. Because certainly back then, anyway, if you didn't go to America to to be an actor, you stayed here. You you were you weren't going to make much money out of it. That that's the way it was. I think that's why you see all these great actors as well in what a carve up because they just had yeah. to take any work that was going. Yeah, because in addition to like we mentioned, you know. Sydney and and Kenneth, but the main reason I watched this movie is because D- Donald Pleasance is in it. Yeah, and yeah. that man was a workhorse. <laughs> uh, he started working in 1952. This is in 1962. He had already appeared in 60 film and TV shows. Wow. In in 1960, he, he was in eight films and six TV shows, nonstop. Yeah, and I think this is. Probably right before we got a little mainstream popular, because this came out a year before The Great Escape. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think and this that's is bef- right. This is before his Bond work and, and all that stuff. But uh, he has a very strange vibe in this. But I think he's very he's he's playing it very similar to his character he played in The Flesh and the Fiends. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. We, we've talked about uh, a little about how this has got a lot in common with Carry Ons, but in in a way, it actually owes more, I think, to Hammer. Which, yes. Yes. Yeah, so, and and he he he's playing the role. He he plays the uh, the the um uh, the the solicitor who oversees the reading yes. of the will. And yeah, he he's the only one in the movie who plays it not just straight, but like deathly straight. It's like he's unnerving in his open his first. Yes. Because he he was in a film uh, by the same producers. Um, who are Monty Monty Berman and uh, what's the other guy's name? Monty Berman and Robert Baker, and right. they started a company and they kind of just ripped off Hammer, and they hired Peter Cushing a lot. They hired some of the same writers. Their films are not as good. <laughs> um, Flesh and the Fiends is great. That's about Burke and Hare, the uh, the yeah. corpse, the 
the people who don't know, like the pe- people who stole, who kill people to sell the some medical, medical cadavers, uh, in the in eight in the eighteen hundreds, and he's great in that movie and very unnerving, and he's very unnerving here, uh, because Donald Pleasance is good at that. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think uh, joining him in like kind of the Hammer adjacent um, is um, how do you say his last name? Michael Go. I think it's Michael Goff, but I could be wrong. Goff. I've always said Goff. Goth, the gothest guy in this movie. Um, playing Fisk the butler, Michael Goff, I recognize him from Dracula, and uh, I think he's in Phantom of the Opera, the, Phantom, the Hammer film, but normal humans know him from Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's Alfred. the original Alfred, but the Alfred we all know and love. Yeah, Michael Keaton's Alfred. Yeah. And... Another guy who worked forever. He worked from 1946 to 2011. Yeah. Um, and for me, he's lower on the Hammer rankings. Like, I have a Peter Cushing, as, as everyone knows, for me is number one. Then Christopher Lee. Then yeah. Donald Pleasance. Then Michael Goff. And then Andre, Mor- Andre Morel. <laughs> <laughs> and then probably Michael Ripper. <laughs> yes. You, you, you got to throw <laughs> Michael Ripper in there. Because he's in every- Michael Ripper is the most British uh, Dick Miller. Yeah, like he's in every Hammer film for like five minutes. That's exactly uh, who Michael Ripper is. I've never thought about yes. it like that. But in this movie, he uh, Goth plays the butler, and it's a very strange character. I think he's kind of channeling um, Boris Karloff a bit. Yes, I thought that as well. Because the, the, he, he's got the like the deformity and the and the limp and so on of um, of uh, Karloff's character in Old Dark House, but mm-hmm. also I, I've. I've read this before somewhere, but I can't remember where now. But it's, uh, allegedly, he said that he'd he'd been inspired by Lurch from the Adams family as well. I could see that. That makes sense. Because mm. <laughs> um, and it, he's doing something to his face to make him uglier. Because he's not that ugly mm, a man. Yeah. Uh, not the hottest guy in the world, but not 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 that ugly. Uh, but he's funny in this, and I like, I like uh, most other, most of the other people in the film. I do not know. Uh, the only other person I recognize, even but not even recognize, I knew who she was after the fact was uh, Shirley Eaton. Yeah, because she is the girl who's covered in gold, in Goldfinger. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and and is in a, a bunch of Hammer movies as well, and also a, a huge number of. Um, James Bond knockoffs from the sixties. She was like your your go to fake Bond girl, basically. Okay, it's like the Scorpio letters. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. The girl from Rio season. Yeah. The million eyes of Sumeru. Yeah, I'm really just reading titles. Movie. They look they look great. Um, some you know British movies from the sixties. Sometimes they they um they're just they look disgustingly horny. <laughs> Like well, aggressively it, heterosexual and disgustingly horny. You, I think. I think part of that, and, and again, it's probably a lot of what fed into the Carry On thing is is the is the British repression, you know, the sexual <laughs> repression that we all have uh, up to some to some degree or another. And I think men in the sixties ha- had in spades. <laughs> it's, it, the like the only horny movies I see are like Italian films. <laughs> yes. Like I was just talking to to Doctor Sparkle last week when we talked about Bava, and somebody in a Bava film was in a movie called "Excuse Me, Padre, Are You Horny?" <laughs> Which is just like 
but like so are so many British films like like the naughty dentist or whatever like that. Yeah. It's just like Yeah. And and the, and half the cast from Monacava are in all those movies. Uh, and <laughs> likewise the hammer. I mean pretty much everyone in this movie, it's only got a small cast because it's a you know pretty much yeah. one location. And I, mm-hmm. I think pretty much everyone in it outside of Sid James and Kenneth Connor were at some point or another hammer regulars. Yeah, because Dennis Price was in Twins of Evil and Vampires, Vampires Lesbos. That, that, Vampiros Lesbos, which was always <laughs> my, that was my favorite movie title. As, as a student, I lived with a guy who had a VHS of, and he, he had this fantastic Birmingham accent. And to hear that Vampiros Lesbos said in a Brummy accent, which I can't do, is just the funniest thing. I, I mean, that's not Hammer, but that's uh, Hammer. He, but he was in Horror, Frankenstein, Theater of Blood, Son of Dracula. Of course, we got Donald Pleasanton and Michael Go. Um, uh, Michael Gwynn was in Scars of Dracula, and he was in The Deadly Bees, the Amicus film with Suck Shit. Um, and, and do you know what else Michael Gwynn was in? I was I, I only realized this a few years ago, but I'd, I've always recognized him and not known what, what from. But he's in Faulty Towers. I don't know if you if you oh okay. if you if you're a Faulty Towers fan, but that's another thing that in this country is an institution. And he played. Yeah, uh, I have seen I've seen about half of Faulty Towers. Yeah. Uh, he, so he played. I think. I think it's the first episode. He played the main guest star, Lord Melbury, who's like a okay. fake, fake aristocrat who's scamming. Oh, I remember that. That's a good episode. Yeah. 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 He's Lord Melbury, and it, when I realized that, it knocked, knocked my head off. He's also in Jason and the Argonauts, which is probably how I know him. Uh, uh, talk about movies I watched on VHS tape eight million times, and he's on Camp, the Camp on Blood Island, which okay. is. A very, very, very good, problematic, uh, <laughs> um, British World War Two Hammer World War Two film with Andre Morel. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I th- oh, is that the sequel? What's one? Um, I think yeah, that that that's the one. That's the one where the POW camp has to pretend they know the war's ended, but they don't want the Japanese soldiers to find out because they think they'll kill all of them. Uh, and it's it's actually I watched it with my Japanese boyfriend and he liked it. <laughs> that sounds like a farce, is it? Or a... no, it's not. It's dark. Uh, the Hammer War, World War Two movies, a lot of them are really bad or or have aged poorly. That one probably holds it the best. I I, I recommend that one. Um, but everybody else in this, like I really don't know very well. Um, is there anybody else you want to shout out? No, I, I don't think there's anyone. I mean, excuse me, Dennis Price, who's one of the drunken relatives, is a uh, guy. Yeah, he's the he's the star of Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is okay. Yeah, I think one of the one of the best comedy films ever made. It's certainly the, mm-hmm. my favorite British comedy, and it is, I think it's an absolute masterpiece. Actually, he, he's the main character in that. But yeah, his, his career went completely off the rails. He's it's weird because he looks a lot like Ed Wood. The famed director of plan nine from outer space and so on yes and his career went went almost exactly the same way because they they kind of they made they 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 made a living making b-movies basically but Mm -hmm. then faded and faded and faded to the point where they were just sort of doing softcore porn and italian crap and it's it's and as a result ended up alcoholics losing their losing their looks putting on weight you know it's, it's it's really weird the way that they, they, their careers sort of mirrored each other and so did their appearances mm. and it says dennis price was bisexual 
Oh, I didn't know that. So just a sad, drunk, bisexual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Charles Hawtrey, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, I tell you. Now we get, now we get, now we get, bring, bring me down, man. Um, We didn't mention who made this film. I don't think there's not much there. Right. I don't know much about these people. Uh, the director is Pat Jackson. He he made a movie uh, like a doc, like a, a reenactment documentary called Western Approaches, which is supposed to be a good movie about merchants, navy sailors lost at sea. Lost at sea. Um, but his career, he went to America, made one movie, and went back to England. Uh, and just kind of did like B grade stuff. This was written by Roy Co- Ray Cooney, right? Who's an o- OBE now. Um, and he wrote a play called Run for Your Wife. Yes, yeah. Uh, British. <laughs> that's that's I think that's quite famous, actually. I, even I've heard of that. Yeah, it is. And it's funny. He's still alive. He's like 90. Um, but it's funny when you go to his IMDb page, he has all these credits and they're all different versions of like five plays in like 18 different languages. Right. Like, so like one for your wife in Dutch and Norwegian and German and whatever. Uh, I don't think it had the, um, I don't think he broke through to America. <laughs> so uh, is it like the actors? They just, they have to do what they can to earn a living. It is weird. Like you get this whole, like, cause okay. You, you know, B movies, obviously. Um, I would in the seventies and sixties, did American B movies make it to England? Yeah, some some did, some didn't. Like, did you get like werewolves on wheels? <laughs> I I don't. I mean, th- th- to be honest, I would imagine that would have played at like a, a few uh, niche cinemas in London, maybe. But we never had the B movie scene here. We never had okay um, a significant like the, like the, like the, the drive in market that led or that powered all those 50s and 60s monster movies. We didn't have an equivalent here, really, and we didn't have as many theatres. So films yeah. films like that would only really have been shown in, in you know, there was no, uh, like, grindhouse district okay. in London for, for, for stuff like that to play in. Okay. Because I, I always, these kind of films just kind of, like, especially carry on. It just reminds me more of, like, Blondie. <laughs> like... Just turning out the same, like, turning out similar movies with the exact same cast over and over and over and over and over again, almost like a sitcom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's basically yeah. how it how it worked. It was it was it really worked more like a television program, and, and the budget as well meant it was looked more like a t- TV show than a a movie. The, the carry on films, and and that goes to Hammer too, because Hammer uses like if you watch enough Hammer films, and I've seen more than enough, um, you recognize the same sets. Yes. The, that same river by the same forest. Yes. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I have uh, my boyfriend recognizes a blanket. <laughs> There's one checkered blanket that we see in every oh, like a million Hammer films. And I recognize names like I don't know why, but the name James Needs, I find that funny. <laughs> my name is James, maybe. And he's the supervisor, he's the su- supervising editor of like most Hammer films. So like, right. James needs James needs. <laughs> I don't know. I can make an obscene joke, but I won't. Um, so I, you, you see the same people, the same places, the same sets, the same costumes, and over and over and over. On, you know, potentially working on more than one film at a time as well. Hammer would shoot you know two films 
if not simultaneously, then back to back on the same sets yeah. with the same and cast uh, and the same crew. Yeah, and this is like kind of like it's like, it's like what, what what is it? Else tree. Yeah. Like oh, that, the, that, um, that. I think well, the hammer hammers were were filmed at uh, largely at I think it was Bray, wasn't it? Their their yeah. home studio, Sheffield, right? I, th- I think it's I think it's London actually. I think it's like um, London, okay. West, I think I think it's in the same neck of the woods as as most of the British studios, like Pinewood and Elstree, and kind of kind of west of London. I think I I only know Elstree from the Buggle song. <laughs> There's a Buggle song called Elstree. <laughs> I don't know why. I I know more than one Buggle song. I'm the guy. Um, you know they, they were in yes. So anyway, but anyway, let's let's move on. What do you want if you don't want money? What do you want if you don't want gold? Say what you want and I'll give it to you, darling. Wish you wanted my love, baby. What do you want if you don't want Herman? What do you want if you don't want those? Say what you want and I'll give it to you, darling. Okay, so well, now we're back to talk about the movie. For everyone listening at home, that was a quick... 30 second interlude of some random music I picked, possibly from the film. But for us, it's been what, Rob? Three days? Three days. <laughs> yes. So Rob's internet exploded. <laughs> and um, it, he was the latest victim in the old dark house. It got him. I think someone was listening in, weren't they? Yes. Yeah, so we, we, we pissed off the spirit of, let's say, Philip O'Flynn. I don't know. Somebody from the movie. Um, Michael Michael Gwynn's family's pissed at us uh, <laughs> and tried to stop this. So we're back. Uh, like So now it's been, I don't know, like five days since I've seen the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> might be a little rusty now and energy might be a little bit different, but we're going to shoulder on. Uh, as we say in Japan, gambate. That kind of means like good luck and you can do it all rolled in together. So um, let's talk about this movie. We, we tried this last time. Uh, so, spoilers for the film. Uh, if I already said that, sorry. Like I said, there are issues. Uh, and I might have said before, if you want to watch this movie, it's on Amazon Prime in America. Um, how did you watch? Do you, do you own a copy of this, Rob? I do, yeah. I've got, a, I've got a DVD of it. Is there a Blu-ray of this? Not to my knowledge, no. No, okay. I can't bring a lot of demand for it. Yeah, well, you know, but uh, the copy on Amazon Prime in America looks, it's in HD, so, uh, but there's a weird audio, I I didn't mention this last time, there's a weird audio thing where I can hear some other audio, like, really quietly sometimes, and it sounds like someone's whispering. Do you know what, Uh, with these movies, these streaming services tend to just pick them up and throw them on, often without, I've watched movies on Amazon that don't even have an audio track. That that are interlaced, <laughs> the wrong aspect ratio. Just the, oh yeah, if it's really obscure. I feel like they just sit there for years without anyone realizing. Yeah, and I, I feel sometimes that's not that's not always their fault. Sometimes just that might be just the best copy left. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, when I watched Hell Squad, Ted Mickles Hell Squad, uh, that was probably the only copy known left. Like, and that was in full screen, improperly matted, so you can see the boom mic half the time, which made it funny. And there are some of the best invading boom mic shots in hell squad there's there's one sequence when they're in car museum and it's never explained but yeah. you can see, you can actually see the, the, the boom not just the mic but the boom coming in from the side of the screen 
going off the top <laughs> of the screen and then the mic coming back in again further across the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. But when I had to talk about boom mics and other movies, this movie has no visible boom mic. Uh, this movie starts. So let's, let's pick up here. So the film starts with our hero, Ernie, sitting alone in his dark room reading a scary book because that is his job, right? That's his job, yeah. He's a proofreader for a publisher. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the way that the um, the fact he's reading a horror book obviously gives him reason to be scared of everything. He's got to read multiple horror books every night. But he gets paid better for those because the sexy books he also has to proofread, um, they reckon they enjoy, so he doesn't get paid as much for them. So he's, he's sitting there scared senseless by the book he's reading when Donald Pleasance arrives in full spooky regalia um, to inform Ernie of his uncle's death. And yes, that's but, well, really what kicks everything off. Yeah, but before that, there is a brief bit with his roommate. We get to meet Sid also. We do, Sid, yeah, of course, because yeah, Sid comes and goes, doesn't he? Yeah, so yeah, Sid, Sid has to bust through the skylight because Ernie is too, reading his book and too involved. And Sid nearly scares Ernie to death. And you get the we get the we get the dynamic very early on between these two that like, and you said it before. Uh, and okay, so usually I don't like it when people talk about two guys and they say one's the woman. <laughs> but in this case, no, it's fine. Um, Sid is the, these two are roommates. They have an Oscar and a Felix odd couple dynamic. Yeah. Sid is is the tough guy, and Ernie is. He, I wouldn't say he's a dandy. He, he's not a dandy. He's not rich enough to be a dandy, but he is very Tony Randall. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, their dynamics also quite Ab- Abbott and Costello, isn't it? I think oh, in a way. Yeah. It, one one yeah. of them's just much cooler than the other one, and Sid James, believe it or not, plays the really cool one. Which, if anyone who knows what Sid James looks like, it's it's quite an ambitious bit of casting in a way. I I think. If you look at his, if you look at his Wikipedia picture, it looks nothing like him in this movie. Um, I think Sid looks cool in this movie. He looks like he looks like a, like a kind of a semi semi scoundrel, you know. Exactly. Not a, yeah. Not, not a that, badass, that, but like a, a guy who can get shit done. Yeah, yeah. A guy who he's going to know everyone in the local pub, and yeah. if anyone in that local pub needs to come by a dead fox or a pair of nylon stockings he's going to be the one to go to a dead fox dead fox yeah dead animals uh, are sold or used to be sold in london pubs to um to a surprising extent man fucking england anyway (laughs) (laughs) i had no idea uh and it's it's so like ernie has a real job it's kind of implied that sid is this kind of as a man of the streets right yeah, well, he's a gentleman of the turf, is how he's right, yeah. described at, at one point. So, a, a, yeah, a wise boy, a gambler, a, not a gangster, not a not a criminal as such, but someone on the, someone who lives in the grey area. Maybe he probably does illegal things, but nothing, nothing like I would not be surprised if he does illegal gambling too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He runs he's, some numbers games, but no, he's not killing anybody. He's what he's what we'd call in this country a spiv. Which is a spiv a, is a, a spiv is a term. I think it's a term that that, that sort of uh, came up during the Second World War. A spiv, a spiv would be someone who kind of had a sideline selling grey market goods that were were meant to be unavailable. Okay, so is a spiv? So it's not a chav. 
No, 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 no. A chav's very different. Okay, I, the, 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 this is the British English sign. This is these are the this is the British slang I know. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So yeah, Donald Pleasant shows up p- playing the role very bizarrely. I feel as this lawyer, almost like otherworldly, like very. He's playing it a lot like his character in the Flesh and the Fiends. Exactly. Yeah, and he, he's and he. He's he's in a different movie to everyone else somehow because <laughs> everyone it's played pretty straight on the whole. Ernie hands it up a bit. Kenneth Connors hand, hands it up a bit, but everyone plays it broadly straight. I mean, no one's ridiculously over the top, but Donald Pleasance plays it just straight as a die. It's just it's un, it's unbelievable how unnerving he can be in those scenes. Yeah, he's he's playing it. I wouldn't say straight because he's bizarre, but he's playing it. <laughs> He's he's not winking at the camera. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And he's he's just he's just legitimately creepy. Yeah. Uh, and he tells him he has to go to this manor in the moors because it's a it could be a matter of life and death, his own life. That makes no sense. <laughs> there's no explanation. Nothing. There's no reason he has any expectations of of anything bad or good to happen to anybody. But we need that extra layer of mystery and fear, I suppose. Yeah, and then so they they plan that they go. He 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 decides to bring Ernie with, Sid, Sid with him. Ernie brings Sid with him because Ernie's a scaredy cat, and they head off there to the moors. Which, as I asked you last time, I didn't know what a moor is. Now I do, uh, thanks to you and this movie. And it's just it's it kind. I think that also sets the tone of the film as kind of cartoonish. Because they get to this station and there's nobody there, and then somebody appears and disappears for no reason. Yeah, and, yeah. it reminds they me have... a little bit of um, Young Frankenstein, that yeah. scene where Gene Wilder first meets uh, Marty Feldman. At that, it's just it's a, it's late at night, the place is deserted, and one guy just does not belong there, and the other guy is <laughs> almost enjoying freaking him out about it, almost enjoying <laughs> being difficult. And I feel like the ride, because they have to hitch a ride with a hearse, I feel like the hearse driver enjoys fucking with Ernie, too, because like he tells him to get in the backseat, which is where the coffin goes. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that has the great line where Ernie says, uh, is this an omen? And Sid says, no, it's a Rolls Royce. <laughs> That's the kind of humor. It's a step above dad jokes, Do you have? but it's... Yeah. It's one-liners, you know, and 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 quips and that, that kind of humor. And so they make their way to the house. They lose a suitcase in the magical quicksand of the moors. Um, this is very silly. Very, very silly. Uh, and then they arrive at the house, and you have to meet the family. And I think the first one they meet is the drunk, right? Which, one's, which one's the drunk? Guy, yeah, Guy, uh, played yeah. by Dennis Price, who's yes. the, who was in Kind Hearts and Coronets. That's what I'll always know yes. him best for, yeah. Yeah, we talked about him a lot before. And he he strikes me as not, like, the, 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 the family's like, we're all crazy. But he doesn't seem that crazy. He seems like a drunk. Yeah, I think that's why he's a drunk, basically. He's, he's found that becoming a drunk is the only way to cope with being part of that family. And he's got a kind oh, of like a really nihilistic streak. Exactly. <laughs> what was that? He's, he's, he's got a really nihilistic streak as well because, mm-hmm. like, he's he's when it transpires, none of them are going to inherit anything. Everyone's outraged apart from him, who just thinks it's hilarious because all yes. these money grabbing scumbags, of which he freely admits being one. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
nihilism and alcoholism to cope with a difficult family. And no wonder I I like this character so much. Anyway. It's it's a cornerstone of British life, that as well. Okay, well, I'm part British. Anyway, (laughs) uh, and I like Malcolm, Mm. who uh, is just like the, his his man, that's played by Michael Gwynn. Yeah. Who's also in the Deadly Bees. This is a better movie than the Deadly Bees. And he kind of walks like a zombie and is just like obsessed with playing the organ. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's the most uh, sort of palpably lunatic of all of them. And yeah, he's got that beautiful scene where he, his, his death scene, which is one of the oh, best later scenes on. in the movie and certainly the best death later on is he's just perfectly cast in that role. I think I mentioned before, he's, he's he's best known in this country, certainly for playing Lord Melbury in Faulty Towers. The, okay, like yeah, the yeah, yeah. First yeah. guest star in, in Faulty Towers. He's obviously 15, 20 years younger here, looks about 30 years younger. So he's obviously had oh, a really? time of it in between. But oh, I didn't he, know that. He kind of yeah. just, he's almost um, ethereal, the way he, he kind of floats around the house and silently entering and leaving rooms just to, to make some bizarre observation which everyone in the family's used to apart from ernie who's freaked yeah. out by all of them because it should it should be noted that ernie has at most barely met these people yeah yeah he, which he, i don't he, know how ashamed he, of him. i mean i don't is is like is is that an issue with like families that have different class structures in the family like they, they disown the the lower class ones yeah, it's, I, it's, I mean, based on the fiction I've seen, I, I don't move in these kind of circles, in these aristocratic okay. <laughs> circles, but based on the kind of fiction I've seen, it's a long-running thing. I think it's probably the same in all countries, but heightened by a class structure. You get these, you'll get like a, a black sheep of the family who married beneath her. and oh, okay. They they won't necessarily be, uh, you know, be discarded completely from the family, but their offspring aren't going to be invited to gatherings and they're going to be put down and they're going to be treated pretty poorly by the aristocratic wing of the family. Because in America, we can just lie and say it's because they live too far away because America's so big. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we don't, we don't talk to them because they live in, you know, Oklahoma and we're in New York. It's not because they're redneck racists. That's not why. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and there's also the the dad i think and who is that that's is that is that uh edward that the dad yeah he's he's not in it so much is he? he's one of the first no. to go that i think he's yeah, he's cause... the brother of the he's the brother of the guy who's died and i think he he knows a little bit more than the rest of them which might be why he's taken out early as mm-hmm. well that's a good point yeah because there is the will reading that's when the cute nurse shows up that she's played by uh um, what's Shirley her name? Eaton. Shirley, Shirley, Shirley Eaton. And that's a big improvement over a movie like Cat and the Canary, where there's a, someone who's not of the same family there. They're all trying to fuck. <laughs> exactly. Because in, in Cat and the Canary, Bob Hope and everybody else is trying to have sex with, with his cousin. And it's Every a distant cousin. One of them. It's a distant <laughs> cousin, but it's still a cousin. And that's just... And well, 1930 something... They're all distant from like there's three of them all trying to have sex with her, and they can't all be distant from each other and be distant from her. There has to be some sort of close relationship in that mix. Hey, hey, man, Jerry Lee Lewis married his cousin. Yeah, okay, yeah fair that was, point. That was 20 years after that movie came out. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and then so they have the will reading. Everyone's getting nothing, and I forgot exactly how, but uh, I believe yeah, the, the lights go out. Then they go outside and they find the body of the the elder the 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 brother of the dead guy. 
Yeah. yeah. And Sid is like, yo, this is murder. I'm going to call the police. Why is a cut? And then Salone is like, the, the lawyer is, is basically says, well, everybody has to stay here tonight because we're all suspects. Yeah, exactly. And there's no way to leave anyway because the moors are foggy or something. <laughs> the, the moors are foggy. It's um, that werewolf, American werewolf of London's out there. Because <laughs> uh, it's the same area, I believe you said it is. It uh, is, yeah. yeah, yes. So there's that, and they are the divvy up their rooms, and that's when Ernie gets his first real moment. Well, he has an early moment with with the cute nurse Linda because they sit, they share a chair. Yes, during the will reading, and and Ernie's all a flutter, and um, but then they go back to her, he, he he pops in her room, ostensibly to protect her, but really because he's terrified. Yeah, and that's when you find out that's what a gentleman he is because she's stripping naked and she can see her. He can see her in the mirror and he stops her. Yeah, and because Ernie's a nice guy, he's an idiot. It's but, a complete. But and the the irony is then is Ernie's moment of chivalry, not wanting to even see Shirley Eaton's back. That's then that, that that's then plastered over all the artwork. So the yes. the promoters of the movie were rather less chivalrous than Ernie was there. Well, I'm not surprised considering the producers. <laughs> yes. And then we get the extended bit where Ernie's too scared to stay in his room alone. So he convinces Sid to stay with him. And as I said before in, in, in the last session of this podcast, this movie is 85 minutes long. <laughs> and the extended sequence of Ernie and Sid in bed together trying to go to sleep is almost 10 minutes. And yeah. not particularly funny. No, it's 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 <laughs> troublesome, isn't it? It's unbelievably hackneyed. The the jokes are really stretched. The the idea of a I think at one point a, the the cat gets under the covers mm-hmm. and Ernie th- that that's that tickles Ernie and makes him laugh. It also makes him think that Sid's kicking him. It's none of it really none of it really works. That sequence does it? No, and this is the sequence we keep talking about where the podcast cuts out. So I'm going to make my same joke again and see what happens. <laughs> But I, this sequence is not great, but I do like it because and it reminds me of a bit that Kevin Smith used to talk about on the commentary track for Clerks, the cartoon, where there's the episode of, have you seen the Clerks, the cartoon? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. There's the, the second episode of Clerks. The, the, the best episode of Clerks, the cartoon is the second episode because it's a flashback episode to the first episode. which is stupid and they make the same jokes over and over and over again and kevin smith is like if you make a joke one time and it's funny second time it's not funny third time it's really not funny but the 20th time is hilarious yeah yeah and that's kind of what they're doing here and so i kind of respect it even though it's not laugh out loud funny it's kind of it's it's adorable yeah and and i can picture the kind of like the, the kind of people this movie was made for would have been my parents' generation, really. Mm-hmm. And the kind I can really see people like my dad and his friends at, at a younger age sitting there in hysterics at that sequence because, for some reason, this is a big thing in in British in British comedy is two men sharing a bed and it being entirely normal and it being entirely, you know, there being no sexual element or whatever. Morecambe and Wise are the, probably the most popular comedy duo in this, you know, this country has ever had. And okay. every single episode ended with them in, in their night hats and night, night shirts going to bed together and maybe okay. singing a song at the same time. It's, 
I don't know where Fucking it comes Burton from. But, well, exactly, exactly. It's that, that kind of thing is. And there's and I no. Think, I think go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. People, people back in the days liked that kind of silliness. I think. Okay, and there's no gay subtext. Absolutely not whatsoever. None whatsoever. Okay. And no one watching that would have thought about that either. I don't think. Huh. That's strange. <laughs> yeah, tell me, well, just a bit. Yeah. Well, I think we're a very thing- repressed people, James. We're a very repressed people. I was thinking it, but you know, you make. I mean, hey, I live in Japan, so <laughs> you know all about like, repression. It, it's a repressing. It's a repressing an apology Olympics. Like, <laughs> who's going to say sorry and oh dear more? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but this scene keeps going, and uh, then Ernie has to go to the can uh, and gets up, and then he goes into the organ room, and that's my favorite part with Malcolm is how yeah. Malcolm just kind of walks in almost like a zombie, not even because Ernie's playing chopsticks and Malcolm just kind of joins him. I think he's being friendly, but he's still creepy about it. Yeah. And uh, no expression on his face. So when he's, when he's brutally stabbed in the back, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you don't even know he's been murdered until he falls down. Uh, And I think that's when it really pops off because that's when Ernie's the only one in the room and the room was locked. Yeah. So, of the, course, everybody assumes Ernie's the killer, but this is an old Dark House movie, so what's the actual truth? Yeah, it's, well, th- there's a secret passage. Obviously, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an old manor house. There's a secret passage, and they, they, they find their way. I mean, if this, has got, this has got all those old Scooby-Doo classics. It's even got yes! the painting with the, ho- with the eye holes and, the, and, the, and the, the mad, crazy eyes through the eye holes. It's, it's that- pure Scooby-Doo. And I feel like that's why so many people know these tropes. It's not because they've seen the old Dark House or Cat in the Canary or the Black Cat of this. It's because they've watched Scooby-Doo. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Scooby-Doo stole everything from this kind of... I mean, this this movie was late to the game as well. It was a it was a big trend sort of between the wars. Yeah. This, these kind of films were, were, were very popular. And this really is spoofing them, even though it's now so old, it seems like it's part of that aesthetic. But yeah, the it's, only, it's pure Scooby-Doo. The only thing this movie's missing from Scooby-Doo is a scene where they're running back and forth in the hallway for different doors. <laughs> That's you know? there, yeah. there must be. Well, there must be a moment like that. It's very similar. But So Sid joins Ernie in the, in the room because Sid believes Ernie because Ernie is not a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and then they find out their secret passages and through a corny shave and a haircut two bits joke. And they all end up back in the living room. And that's when you see the uh, eyes in the painting more. And Janet, who did, we did not mention Janet. Janet is yes. played by Valerie Taylor. She's uh, not an actress I know, actually. I don't know what else she's yeah. done. Yeah, I don't think she did much. She mostly did TV. The, the most notable role I could find her, she was in Repulsion. Uh. But I, I've never seen Repulsion, so I don't know who she was in that. Um. But she doesn't. She she's also seems relatively sane. Yeah, yeah. She's she's Guy's sister, and they hate each other. Yeah. So she's <laughs> kind of the. I suppose she's the the only sort of normal woman in it, for want of a better term, because everyone's else is either super hot or completely insane. But she's yeah. got it similar to Guy. She's got a slightly nihilistic sort of downbeat air about her which i always like and there's some great banter between the two of them as well yeah they got good banter and we didn't mention uh 
the the aunt either. Yes. Um, aunt Aunt Emily, played by Aunt Esma Emily, Cannon. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Who is who is a complete fruitcake of the first order and just brilliant, just brilliant. I mean, you know exactly the kind of character. You know the the the, the, the doolally elderly relative. There's, I mean, that's as much an American trope as mm-hmm. it is anything else. And she's just great. Yeah, and she's completely senile and is knitting helmets for the war. That's right, yeah. For for the World for the, World so, the boys in the trenches. So it's not yeah, even the, the second the world trenches. war. That's and the second what... the second but that's gonna change the second those women get the right to vote, he says. Yes, yeah, so as soon as Miss Pankhurst gets us the right to vote. <laughs> who, yeah, who is that? Uh, Emily Pankhurst, who's like the um, the, the the icon oh, of the just, suffragette movement. So okay. the, 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 the you know the, the, the it's, she's our Che Guevara. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> didn't know that. Uh, and then in the living room, there's a poison dart that takes out Janet. And yep. every and they're like, "Well, who wasn't here? Fisk isn't here." The Butler, who played, Fisk, played, 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 by, played by Michael Go from from Batman. Um, and then they find who, and Fisk just seems above it all. Like he doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> People are dying, whatever. And I love his alibi. Remember, I can't remember. remember that was that, he has no. He has not moved so long that the ash in his cigarette is oh, like yes. between his fingers. So that is an airtight alibi. He cannot have killed them. That's <laughs> it's a great touch, isn't it? Yes, and then so, but Emily stayed in the room when they were all interrogating Fisk, and she was like, "Oh, I saw Gabriel, your uncle. I had he's a chat fine. with him. Yeah, he's he's doing well." And they're like, "Is this bitch crazy, or is she right?" And <laughs> they run off to the coffin because this is the kind of British house that has a coffin that has a has a mausoleum. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> is that what you're recording now to get me a better internet? Exactly. <laughs> That's why I can't afford proper internet. I've got to pay for my mausoleum upkeep. God damn it! This, maus- this mausoleum's killing me. Someone help me! Is that that Twitter joke about the like, spending five thousand dollars on candles? I forgot the anyway. Um, and then they go to the they go to check the coffin, and the body's there. But then. Ernest also says he saw Gabriel. I think I forget. It gets confusing at this yeah. point. Like I said, everybody, it's been a few days. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize. There's, there's coming and going basically because it turns out there's a there's the secret passage leads into the coffin, which mm-hmm. was a lot of some real forethought went into the design of this yeah, house. Yeah, really. So 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 the, the the dead uncle comes and goes, but so do other dead people within the coffin and without the coffin. So yes. it's that um, that farcical. There might not be people running in and out of doorways and corridors, but it, it's almost that farcical. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. And then uh, I forget who somebody ran off. To, I think it was Sloan went off to get a to get, get the police at some point. Somebody right. goes to get the police, and a cop comes back. And my favorite one liner in the movie is um, when the cop says, who's been murdered? And Ernie says, Dr. Edward, Janet, Malcolm. And then the cop says, all right, Dr. Edward, Janet, Malcolm, where's the body? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know why that joke is so... 
my boyfriend speaks perfect English, but a lot of times, like wordplay jokes go over his head because it's not his first language. And I, pl- whenever it happens, I, I love it, and I just, I just play the joke back until he gets it. And yeah, when he find- I- and, and usually when he get when it happens, it's not a very funny joke. So then he gets it, and he goes, "Oh." It's there are there, there, it's there's so much British humor in this movie that I'm, oh, I'm sometimes God. surprised that other people do appreciate it because my favorite line in it is one that I'm not even sure um, a lot of English people would necessarily get because it's just so dry. It's when, when it's near the beginning and uh, Ernie says to Sloane, um, "Oh, have I inherited anything from my uncle?" And Sloane just says, "No." And the meaning is, like, no, you're so common and pathetic and worthless, and he was a great man. No, you haven't inherited <laughs> anything from him. But, of course, it's, it, it, you've, got to, you've got to understand that, that English class system to get mm-hmm. that that's what the, 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 the solicitor would be saying. Yeah, what's the phrase? I, for, I did a podcast about the Peter Cushing movie, Cash on Demand. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is a fantastic film. It and, is. Uh, Joe, on, he's, he who's from Scotland, he talked about deterrence, deference, like between classes. What is oh, what's the phrase? Deference, yeah. Deference. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm American. I said, I said it wrong. Um, <laughs> deference. So there's, there's a bit of deference. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a sign of the times, really. Because I mean, obviously, I think we've still got this reputation, but I don't think we're really any different now to any other country. Our, our country is run by the elites, just like America and Japan is. But it, to, today, this relationship would be completely different because Ernie wants his family to see him as more upper crust than he is. He wants to be part of that. You know, he, he puts mm-hmm. on a, he stops dropping his T's and puts on a, a slightly more sophisticated accent. And once now, that character would have to play it the other way to be taken seriously. He'd have to be putting down, he'd have to be superior to them because he's cleverer and better and doesn't want to be like them. So it's kind of the last, the last scratchings of the, the class system on film, in a way. Hmm, that's a good, yeah. I, didn't, I mean, you would know more than I about that, you know. Um, like I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. There was only one class. <laughs> was, <laughs> there, I mean, there are, there's a rich area, but like when I growing up, I did not have any comp. You know, everybody was kind of lower middle class. Yeah, it's like yeah. like the early scenes of The Simpsons, kind of. Yes, that's my my area, and then. So we get a lot of screwball comedy happening. There's the policeman here, and they I think I forget who's starting to figure it out, but they go to they Ernie goes to go find Sid and he finds Sloan outside just chilling by the fountain, but that's because Sloan's fucking dead. <laughs> so <laughs> he never went to get the police. Exactly. But the policeman arrived anyway. Yes, yeah, so that means Someone's been reading Agatha Christie. Which that, one? That means that, I think most of them, <laughs> something like that. Okay. So, so yeah, so that means the policeman has to be the killer. And I think yeah. by this point, we, we know the killer is the dead uncle, and we realistically. Now, you've seen this movie so many times. When you, when you were younger, did you have any ideas? Do you remember if, the, the, you trying to parse out who the killer was? Oh, oh, of course, yeah, and repeatedly. I have two great advantages when it comes to enjoying these movies. One is that I am hopeless at guessing the killer. I love Murder, She Wrote, my favorite TV show. And even when I've seen an episode five times, I can't identify the killer. And it's the same with this. I've only 
it's probably only in recent years that I've become happy with my memory that it is actually the uncle and I haven't watched it wondering who the killer is at every mm-hmm. moment. <laughs> I mean, I was trying, I, it, it, the, the twist caught me until, like when the cop showed up, I thought he might have been in on it, kind of like in Cat in the Canary. Yeah. But I didn't know he would actually be the killer. Um, the problem, okay, so... Things keep escalating here. He's gonna murder them. He's gonna set the. He's gonna set starving dogs on them, <laughs> which is fucking mean. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, uh, Fisk ha- t- it turns out Fisk has been feeding the dogs, so the dogs aren't aren't, aren't starving. This wanted to play exactly. And, yeah, the, the flawless plan fell apart yes. at the last moment. And then um, the Gabriel tries to shoot something, hits a trap, and the Sandalia falls on his head and kills him. Now, here's my thing. What's his motive? Uh, the movie needs to happen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the only motive for anything that happens, really. Because <laughs> I think I mean, it's kind of Go ahead. He does say something about um about how ungrateful his family are and how they only they're only interested in him for his money or something. But I mean, obviously, he kind of loses the moral high ground on that point when he starts murdering them. <laughs> but ultimately, there's no real reason for any of it. I, I, I'm fairly sure there's no reason for the chandelier to suddenly fall and kill him as well, isn't that? No, completely no, random event, I, or does something cause it? And you know, we're talking. We, I, it sounds like it being negative, but I kind of like that. There's no. It's just so simple. Of course, like, it doesn't need to be anything else. Sometimes I just want something silly. And exactly. This, I mean, I feel like our our description of this is one hampered by the fact that we've done half this before, <laughs> and so we kind of and watched it five days ago. But also, like a lot of the humor in this is the one liners. It's it's the it's the British humor. It's it's the quips and yeah. I don't want to recite all the jokes. You you should see the movie to get them. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And but the one joke I did not get <laughs> was the very end. So Ernie's trying to get on, you know, get with Linda. Yeah. Uh and Sid keeps so joking that she yeah, mate, yeah, ma- she loves you like a brother. Um because at the end, it turns out Linda does have a boyfriend, and this vaguely handsome man shows up and takes her away, and the movie ends. Um, who the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, not I, 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 I never understood that as a child either, because it, 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 it really, it's a really weird scene, isn't it? It is just like there's a, a, a big establishing joke has been cut by accident, because we're obviously meant to find something incredibly fascinating and hilarious, but there's nothing to really telling us what that is. But yeah, that guy is Adam Faith, who was a huge, huge star in the, I think like the late fifties, early sixties in this country. I think he was part of the whole um, rock and roll thing. He was probably one of the British Elvis knockoffs, basically. Okay. Probably probably the way to put him. Mm -hmm. So he was a huge star then. And that's uh, obviously that would have been like a big cameo. I think everyone in the audience would have gone, "Oh my god, it's Harry Styles or whatever," you know, <laughs> completely unexpectedly showing up right at the end. And of course, it, it, I suppose the, the joke is 
that Ernie thought he had a chance with her. Ernie's, you know, he, he, he fancies her and he thinks he's got a chance. But he's so far out of her league that she's actually in, in Adam Faith's league. Yes. I guess, I guess that's the joke. And, like, I, when we were talking on Twitter about this, I asked if Adam Faith was, like, a C-grade Cliff Richard. And you said, that, that, that's just Cliff Richard. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know. I, I'll put in – I will Google an Adam Faith song, and I'll play it at some point in this episode. I have no idea who that is. Uh, there's a lot of, like, bad – I'm sorry. Like, my, my there's a lot of bad British Elvises. Yeah, of course, yeah. It's and, that era before the Beatles kind of mm-hmm. changed everything and everyone started imitating them. Yeah, there, there were some terrible acts being washed up. And my 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 uh, long-standing view on British pop music is that the middle ground of British pop music is very small, and it is either amazing or the worst shit you've ever heard in your entire life. <laughs> it's it's like it's either you know Oasis and Blur or Vitamin C. Yeah, yeah, you're you're you probably know? right there. You're probably right. And that's just, I, and, and like America has terrible music too. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, oh my god, like in Canada, you know, Nickelback, you know, but like, <laughs> like it's just that's just my, like in the grunge era, like for example, there was not a lot of like god awful. Oh my god, I want to kill myself. Rock music, but in England, it seemed like it would come over every few months, <laughs> <laughs> and also, but also Oasis. You know, and Blur and Suede and the Stone Roses. So, like, and uh, Primal Scream. And I, I could r- rattle off eight dozen bands, you know, yeah. that are amazing. So, it always it seems it's a, that that's my view of British music. As somebody who used to write about music professionally, that's, I, I feel somewhat qualified to make that statement. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've, I, I developed a theory during lockdown, which was, it's not very complicated, but it's British bands often quite good american solo artists often quite good my all of my favorite musical acts tend to be either an american solo artist or a british band i don't know if that's a an oft observed point but i've heard someone say that like because there's no there's no american equivalent of the beatles or the rolling stones and well well we're well off topic now but i think you know because like the closest i can think of as a as a band and it's kind of a technicality is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the closest. Like, but there are, there are, there are American bands. I think maybe Nirvana, maybe like I think the grunge era we did good. Oh, of course, no. There's, I mean, there are plenty of great American bands, obviously. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's just when I look at the the, the 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 acts that to me are, are just like next level. It's you know, it's Bob Dylan, it's Tom Waits, it's Johnny Cash, and then it's the Beatles, it's Led Zeppelin. Yeah, it's, Guns N' Roses actually would uh, another yeah. favorite. That's an American band. That's as good. Yeah, but as they anything. only got like two good albums. You know, it's not. They're not. They're not fucking Maiden. Yeah, Priest, no, fair point. You know, fair point. I mean, I've I've been getting way in the middle the past few months. So I I, I yeah I've, I have listened to not like a shitload of Maiden and Priest the past like six months and. <laughs> no American metal held holds a candle to that. But we're way off topic now. Yeah, um, <laughs> so like this movie, I want to talk about. Really quick, because this is strange to me. This movie came out in America, as I said before, as Home Sweet Homicide. But it was only released, from what I could tell, as a B picture playing after a documentary (laughs) called The Sky Above, Mud Below, which I believe is a French documentary uh, about 
explorers uh, going into uh, Dutch New Guinea. Um, right. And it's, I don't, I skimmed it on Tubi. It's not super, it's not like Mondo Kane. Like, it's not like, it's not trash. Yeah. Uh, it seems a little, it's very colonial, but it doesn't seem to be, it seems like it's hearts in the right place, at least. It's not like an exploitative trash movie. But what the fuck is it doing as the A picture? <laughs> <laughs> That can only be something weird, like the distributor had two products and and only two to put out at the same time. I don't know what, but I, I think, can't imagine who on earth went to see this though outside of England. Because like when we, as we've talked about, it's not it's not a popular film here. I don't know anyone who's ever going to have heard of it, other than people I've introduced it to. I, I can't explain that at all. Yeah, it's bizarre. And, and, and according to INDB, this was distributed by Embassy Pictures uh, oh, in America. Really? And they, they did a lot of, they did all kinds of stuff back in the 60s. Yeah, it was a big I, company. Yeah, big company. I mean, they were a big art house company. Like, they put out eight and a half and stuff like that in America. So right. that makes sense that they would have as a uh, sky above whatever, mud below. sky. But why they would tack this onto it. It's bizarre. Like, why even release it? I guess maybe they had that. Maybe they had uh, had have double feature. Who knows? Um, yeah. it's just strange. But like, nobody in America. Like, I had never heard of this movie. I I would be shocked. I I I bet it. Maybe it got a VHS release at some point in America, but I never saw the box. Um, for it. I had no recollection of it at all. Um, and it has no like no like as as unfamous as it is in England, it's like nobody in America. Like nah, I said, of course. of course, this is the second most obscure film I've covered on here after too much the the robot movie. Uh, I do have a question you might know though. Um, what is this, what is with this book? A big have you pun? seen this? There's a book by somebody named Jonathan Coe. Oh yeah, do you know what? I remember reading about that years ago. Oh god, I can't remember now whether it was uh, a novelization or it's not. It's it's like it's a, it's it's um a satirical novel. It says, and it's about it's it's a making fun of British culture, um, right? And one of the characters in the mo- in the book is obsessed with this movie. That's right. I remember yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it has some. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a niche. weird. That's a deep cut. <laughs> that's the most niche novel you could ever imagine when you think about it. <laughs> yes, uh, a critique of the Gulf War and Margaret Thatcher under the framework of the nineteen sixty one comedy What a Carve Up that no one's heard of or seen. That's no except me and you and and like the family of the people in it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I I don't know anything about Jonathan Coe. Is is he a major author in in the UK? I've never heard of him. I, okay. I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. know. I, I, like I said, I only know because of you know Wikipedia and shit. So, but uh, I think we can both recommend this movie heavily. Definitely, definitely. With with the caveat that if you if you're just not interested, if you if you just don't connect with different cultures which is perfectly understandable and fine, then you're going to struggle because it's very British. It's Yeah. And I love British humor. So it's right up my alley. And as I said before in this podcast, my boyfriend is Japanese, but he is, he speaks British English. He's obsessed with British culture. So he loves it. Um, yeah. But 
this is the genre we talked about. And again, I apologize for repeating ourselves because I don't remember what happened Friday, three days ago. Um, the old Dark House genre. Yes. So we both recommend the 1939 Cat in the Canary. Yes, definitely. An amazing movie. Um, it's, it's superb. For me, it's, there's, there's probably three that are, that are on my top tier, and The Cat in the Canary is definitely one of them. What are the, what are the other ones? Um, uh, the Old Dark House, the original Old Dark House, the James Whale one we mentioned before, and, um, and then there were none from, uh, you've reminded me of the year last time, it was 42 or mid-40s or something. Yeah, something like that, yeah, yeah. And, and that's got, I mean, they're all, they've all kind of got a similar tone in a way in that they've all got humour. None of them are, are completely straight. Mm-hmm. But the, the, that humour can check, can, can so, uh, the, what a carve up is essentially a spoof of this kind of genre. Whereas Old Dark House and and then there were none is uh, they're straight movies, but with an incredibly dry, low key humorous streak that's pure um, Agatha Christie, pure old British authors and mm-hmm. and then the one on is actually an agatha christie it's, i think it's the best known adaptation of the, the book the original title i'm not yeah. going to use and I, no. i'm not really comfortable using the first replacement title either no. to be honest no, so we'll no, stick with and then no. the one on yeah 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 <laughs> smart smart uh i like the original old dark house i do like the remake which is a strange movie Mm. With um, it's, that's directed by William Castle and put and produced by Hammer. Yeah, uh, and and that has for um Gen X and older Americans out there that that stars Tom Poston who played George on Newhart. If you know who the hell that is, um, George was the guy who always wore overalls on Newhart. If if you know, right. what, do you know what Newhart is? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I reckon I I spent half the movie watching it. Like, who the fuck is this guy? I had, I had to pause the movie and look it up because it was driving me crazy. Um, and that's a weird movie, but I really do like it. And I would recommend the 1941 version of the Black Cat. Yes, yeah. Not the previous pre-code one. This is completely unrelated. Although they both have they both have Bell the Ghosty. Um, this Black Cat has a uh, Basil Rathbone in it, and it's very similar. They, but it, th- th- in this one, the relative's not dead yet. They're all waiting. They're all in the house waiting for her to die. Right, I remember it. Yeah, and uh, that has a million amazing one-liners in it, and it was written by the guys who wrote a lot of Abbott and Costello. And when ah. you watch it, it it really plays like that. Um, that's a great, great, really underrated, underseen movie. I'd check that out. I was going to ask you: Have you seen the Radley Metzger version of this of, of Cat in the Canary? Yeah, is that the the silent one? Or no, the Radley Metzger, the director. No, sorry, I don't, I'm I'm not familiar. Uh, I, let, me, let me look this up really quick. I, I think that's who. Yeah, 1978, Radley Metzger. Radley Metzger directed stuff like um, the Licorice Quartet. Oh, and, okay. And I think under a different name, he directed the opening of Misty Beethoven. Um, what's yeah, yeah, that's him, yeah, and the image and like hardcore porn. Um, I am, I want to know how you make tits into a hardcore porn, into a softcore porn. <laughs> uh, that has Honor Blackman in it. 
Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. So was this the 1970s? Did you say? According according to Letterbox, Bob, you've seen this movie. <laughs> oh, 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 do you know what, uh, man? The they the extent to which these things blur into one is <laughs> is extraordinary to me. I was going to try and pin it down to because in the 70s, there's mm-hmm. a whole cycle of remakes of all these movies. There's yeah, um, uh, Cat in the Canaries remade the. Um, and then there were none, I think, was remade twice. Strangely, of course, yeah. one of which stars Shirley Eaton in, in huh. a, a, a weird sort of like post-swinging 60s vibe. But no, I, oh no, I can't remember which one that is, I'm afraid. Because that has that has a hell of a cast. It has Carol Lindley, who I know from Bunny Lake is Missing, which is a great movie. Um, Olivia Hussey. Oh, really? Uh, um, and Anna Blackman. Um, yes, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah, I remember on a Blackman being in, and um, you gave it uh, two stars on Letterboxd. Yeah, so. that's that's yeah for for an old dark house movie, that's not very good for me. Okay, I'll take I'll take your word for. It. I was just, I was just curious. I was like seeing Radley Metzger's name on this, and that that was strange to me. So, but yeah, old dark house movies are fun. I I, I after watching this, I want to check out more. I would say to everybody, kind of a famous one is House of Long Shadows. Um. Yeah, and that's and I might have mentioned it before, and that's because that that has the dream cast that has Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing in it, and John Carradine, um, yeah, and Desi Arnaz Jr. Um, but it's not a very good movie. It, it, it's not. It's not, and it, it always. I always think every now and again I go back to it because I've got it on DVD, and the artwork on the DVD case is oh, absolutely fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah, and I, I just, I look at it every now and again and think it can't be as bad as I remember, but it always is. Yeah, Desi Arnaz Jr. is just not doing it. But I have to rank this on my list. Um, I'm going to give you a link in Twitter. Hopefully, this won't, this won't blow up everything. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you click on that link in Twitter, Rob? Cool. Okay, so I have a my link, my ranking of every movie I've covered on Cinema Oblivion, uh, and I'm trying to figure out where to put. Uh, cool. I want to carve up. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, and I, th- I think it's going to go pretty high. I think I'm going to make it probably 25. 25. So that oh, yeah, means yeah. it's better than the last. It's not as good as The Last Dragon <laughs> <laughs> or Walter Hill's Driver or Manhunter or Erg, a music war. But it's better than Ghost World, Running Scared, or The Legend of the Stardust Brothers, which are the most, if you had to pick four more different films, <laughs> I don't think you could do it. This so, is not a common set of comparisons, is it? No, it's a, as I said last week when talking to Dr. Sparkle, it's an impossible, it's kind of an impossible list, but it's just like, what do I want to watch the most? And, yeah, and there is a theme. I'm looking at looking at your top twenty here. There is a mm-hmm. theme, and and that theme is absolutely awesome movies. Fuck yeah, it is. Yeah, um, and Peter Cushing, and Peter Cushing. Yeah, yeah. Horror Express is a, that's a real favorite of mine. Well, he's in three. He's in Horror Express, Cash on Demand, and Twins, Twins of Evil. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I I fucking love that movie. But anyway, uh, we hey Rob, we did it. <laughs> we, we made <laughs> it to the end. We made it to the end. Um, episode Days in the Making. So, Rob, uh, can you tell people where they can find you online? Yeah, uh, Bad Movie Bible YouTube channel is the, uh, is the only thing I'm going to plug because that's where everything stems from and is plugged into now. And as I've said before, uh, 
you have YouTube channel is one of my favorites in the world. Thank you very uh, much. The episode I did on American Nin- on Revenge on uh, what's the Ninja movie? Ninja Three. <laughs> I forget which one. <laughs> would not have I would not have been as good without a video about that movie. Uh, Thank you. And every time I have like an hour to kill and I'm bored or depressed, I will put up one of your long movies. Especially, I really love your two part Die Hard one. And oh, thank you. The Nightmare on Elm Street one was hilarious, like great. And I've seen that was the one I saw the most of. I think I saw a lot of those movies, I, even the Bollywood movie. I've seen the yeah, Bollywood really. Nightmare on Elm Street, which is <laughs> fucking something, something else. Well, I'll really quick. Sometimes when you cover these movies, like you'll cover like some Indian or some, you know, uh, Asian film that like, how do you get a copy of it? With the, with the really rare stuff like that, to be honest, YouTube is the best resource. Okay. So many old Indian movies are on YouTube. Um, a- Asian ones, less so. It's, that's much more likely to be some sort of imported DVD or just harassing people I know. I'm quite lucky to have a few people I can lean on for copies because I get through so many movies. If I had to buy each one for each video, it would cost tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. Well, if you ever need to lean on somebody for a Japanese DVD, uh, I am oh, here for you. you. Thank yes. you, that's worth knowing, yeah. Yes, because, <laughs> yeah, oh no, twist my arm, it made me, made me go to a Japanese video store. Yeah, oh no. I mean, <laughs> I, was in three, I was in three Japanese record stores today, so it's not, oh, not a problem. So anyway, so but, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. But um, anyway, you can find me online, as usual, as Lost Turntable on everything. And again, I'm going to uh, kind of um, promote my letterbox. I've been, I've been doing a lot there, and I really like writing on that. That's a lot of fun. And I haven't done this in a while, and I'm going to say it. If, if you like this podcast, you know, do the whole, like, rank it and review it on whatever podcast platform you use. Because I must be honest, I'm a whore. And the more people who like this, the more I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so. And unlike YouTube, I like doing this. So I want because I, 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 I guess I can't do editing. But anyway, if you if you have a chance, you know, leave leave a good review, recommend it to a friend, whatever. But and if not, hey, you know, you do you. It's fine. But that'll do it for this week. Again, we did it, Rob. I'm so happy. I'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, take care. Cheers.